Welcome to Dissecting Medical History. I'm Ange. I'm a travel nurse, medical history enthusiast, and your host. If you're looking for a storytelling formatted podcast with fun and fascinating topics on history and bios, then you are in the right spot. Please note this is not in any way medical advice. If you have anything that's ever discussed in any of the podcast episodes, please seek medical attention. Now, let's get this story started. A year ago today, I launched my trailer for this podcast. I started this podcast as a hobby because I love to share things I learn with other people. And I'm so excited that there are people out there that actually listen to the things that I want to share. And I'm so grateful to my family and my friends who have supported me. But I'm really grateful for the over 8,300 listeners that have downloaded the podcast episodes this year. I honestly thought if my mama was the only one listening and liked it, then it was worth it. This coming year, I will be adding more true medical crime because I've gotten a huge response and there's more downloads for those than there are my regular uh, medical history stuff. So I thought I would keep that going. I'm going to try to do that maybe once or twice a month. And hopefully you like it as much as I do. So, um, but I still will be doing the bios and the medical history stories like before. But anyway, thank you. And now let's get started with our story. I never gave heat stroke much thought. I suppose if I thought of it, I would think it was an event that happened with too much sun, leaving a person severely dehydrated but not dead. But a little over a month ago, that event that I never gave much thought to happened to me and left me dead. But before we get into that story, I thought I would share a little bit about heat stroke and how it is a little more fascinating than I used to think so. More than 5 million people die around the world from heat stroke a year. And the numbers are on the rise. More than likely, it's thanks to global warming, according to a 20-year study that's being conducted by scientists around the world. The government in the, in the U.S., by a group called OSHA, has regulations in place for those that would be affected by heat, but they just don't have the, man how, the manpower to keep up. When someone reports a death, from a heat stroke on the job, they do record it, but they are not very good at following up because, like I said, there's no manpower uh, enough to follow up. So I think in that regard, there's probably a lot of regulations that still could be done. But in the meantime, that's as much as they've been doing. Heat stroke... um, well, what exactly is heat stroke? So according to John Hopkins, heat stroke is the most severe form of heat illness and is a life-threatening emergency. It's the result of the long extreme exposure to the sun. In this case, the person does not sweat enough to lower the body temperature. It develops rapidly and needs a medical treatment immediately. It is associated with a central nervous system. The body temperature is 40 Celsius or 104 degrees 
Fahrenheit or higher. Heat stroke can take down someone that is perfectly healthy within an hour. It can affect those that work outdoors like day laborers, athletes, soldiers, field workers, and the like. It does not need any outside source like a virus or bacteria, just the sun or trapped heat. Dehydration has a lot to do with it. If there isn't enough water in our systems to create sweat, well, we get overheated quickly. Other than the environment risk factors such as extreme heat, lack of AC, there are health risks that might be a risk factor for the patient, like age or illness, weight, heart disease, or a poor nervous system, poor circulation. Even medications can play a part in heat stroke. Some of the symptoms of heat stroke kind of are obvious, headache, dizziness, disorientation, agitation or confusion, sluggishness or fatigue, seizure, hot, dry skin that is flushed but not sweaty, high temperature, loss of consciousness, rapid heartbeat, and hallucinations. The symptoms seem pretty self-explanatory, but I'm here to tell you, when you're in the middle of getting heat stroke, you don't realize that you're getting heat stroke. It is probably better to prevent it altogether. So a little bit on the history of heat stroke. I found an article recently that stated that the first described heat stroke was in Rome in 24 BC during an expedition. It was described as thus, unlike any of the common complaints, but attacked the head and caused it to be parched, killing forthwith most of those who were attacked. (laughs) I love that it says attacked, like the sun was attacking you. The relationship between the different factors still is lost on them and still was until the 19th century. Did you know that heat stroke is mentioned in the Bible? Manassas, Judith's husband, was a farmer and got um, got sunstroke and died. I think there's another person in the Bible that got mentioned as well. Alexander the Great in 33. 332 BC used protective clothing and protective measures for carrying supplies and preventive heat exhaustion. But through the years, a lot of soldiers did not do these measures and they would lose soldiers to the heat stroke rather than to the fighting. So props to Alexander for recognizing that he didn't want to lose any more soldiers than he had to. Hippocrates used cold water to cure overheating. Hippocrates was around 400 BC. He thought it would unblock the fibers throughout the body that were obstructing sweat. And then there were the Egyptians. They used an olive and wine ointment on the body. It wasn't very effective, but I'm sure they smelled really good. Between the 17th and 19th centuries in America, sweating was warned against because it was believed that it would cause the insides to be too cold. This meant avoiding hot pepper eating or excessive drinking of alcohol, as well as sweating-inducing activities. Even drinking too much water was to be avoided, which would end up causing bigger problems, obviously dehydration. 
The Medical Dictionary, Mother Bee, wrote in 1775, just a year before our country's birth, uh, they called it Iticus Solaris, another name for heat stroke, and was a, considered a long exposure to the hot sun, often produced inflammation that was speedily fatal. So if you listen to my episode on Humors 101, you would already know what their recommendation would be to cure such a problem. Quote, first bleed as freely as the strength will admit. After this, the legs, or if the disorder is violent, the whole body may be put into a warm bath, which should not be hotter than new cow's milk. Emollient clusters, gelatinous and oily articles should be frequently injected, almond emulsion, lemonade, and the such like demulcent cooling drinks should be freely given. Linen cloths wrung out and with vinegar and water and be applied to the face and scalp. Okay, so I don't think this poor patient would have had a chance with that warm bath because <laughs> putting putting an already hot body in a warm bath, I mean, disaster. During the Lewis and Clark expedition between 1804 and 1806, there is an account in the book by Dr. Peck that wrote about a patient that he treated that had gotten struck with the sun. They did do bloodletting on him, and they gave him something called nitre. Sounds like some sleep aid, but it is made with saltpeter, potassium, and nitrate. This was to act as a diuretic. So the poor patient is losing volume in two different ways, the blood and the urine. They said he started to do better, but I don't know if that person ended up making it. I find it highly unlikely unless they got him out of the sun and were able to cool him down enough. In 1858, a military surgeon by the name of Beetson had the good sense to see that bloodletting for heat stroke was not smart. He recommended get him, if possible, under the shade of a bush, raise head a little, and commence the infusion of old water from a sheepskin bag, continuing the infusion at intervals over the head, chest, and epigastrium until conscious and the power of swallowing has returned. I think that was pretty smart advice. Good observation. And then there's Dr. Benjamin Rush, who I've talked about in the yellow fever episode. He was a big believer that drinking cold water produced diseases or death, especially in large quantities, too quickly. There are many that believed it caused heat stroke. There was even public signs in Philadelphia that warned of drinking cold water. Luckily, around that time, new and up-and-coming physicians were starting the questioning of old ways, bloodletting, was finally starting to be phased out in the late 1800s, giving heat stroke patients a fighting chance. And luckily we had those physicians that were questioning the ways of people like Dr. Benjamin Rush. A rather funny treatment sometime in the 1800s was color therapy. Using a blue filter for sunstroke, you focus the light on a specific body parts. <laughs> And in 1914, another color treatment theory came out that said the heat stroke 
could be relieved by wearing a hat with a blue band on the inside. If only that were sim- that simple. Can you imagine color treatment on so many diseases? That would be amazing. Could do pink for breast cancer. That'd be awesome. In 1895, the theory came that. In 1895, the theory came that the patient should be cooled off first, then transported. In fact, it was stated to have every ambulance come, bring ice, bring water, bring your sprinklers, whatever they could to keep the temperature down, and then to take a temperature in the rectum until the ambulance ambulance surgeon felt it was safe to move the patient. On-site cooling might be the biggest factor to assure survival. It's amazing to think that in 400 BC, Hippocrates was recommending cold water treatment, and we circle back to it today with treating with cold water. I talked about symptoms of heat stroke, but what about damage from heat stroke? Well, the obvious, if the temperature goes above 180.1 degrees or more, the brain starts to cook. It only takes about 20 minutes, so it's very vital to get the patient's temperature down fast. Before the very horrible, fatal brain cooking, the body starts to get damaged. The muscles can break down in what's called rhabdomyolysis, rhabdo for short. In case of a heat stroke, the skeletal muscle fibers start to break down, causing toxic substances that damage the kidneys. It's extremely painful, but it can be reversible. It takes several weeks to months to overcome. Heat stroke can also cause damage directly to the kidneys and heart. Of course, the longer it takes to get treated, the worse the damage. It's also random as to what's affected by the heat stroke. There is still so much to learn about how heat damage affects the body. There can be long-term effects such as organ failure or brain damage. Another thing is that heat tolerance is something that is very real. This is something that could take a few weeks and a few months to go away. Heat intolerance being that you just feel uncomfortable or feel even when it's only 80 degrees outside, you still feel that it's hot. I know because I'm going through the heat intolerance. Okay, so I'm sure you've heard the phrase dog days of summer, but did you know where it comes from? Well, It comes from the star Sirius in the constellation Canis Major, meaning big dog. Dog days refers to when Sirius is appearing to rise alongside the sun late July in the northern hemisphere. Pretty much it lasts during the hottest days of the summer, which is why they call it the dog days of summer. Anyway, that is my little history on heat stroke. Obviously, the best thing to do is prevent it. Drink lots of water. Make sure you're very hydrated. Try not to be out in the direct sunlight. Try to get some shade. Try to get some breaks. This is if you're doing outdoor work, indoor work, wherever you're in a hot place. Okay, now that you've stayed with me this long, it's time to tell my story. I've mentioned before that I make greeting cards as a hobby, and sometimes I sell them. And one very hot day on a Saturday in July, my mom and I were at a festival on the central coast of California selling our wares. 
it does not normally get very hot in these towns, definitely not over 100. But on this particular day, it got to be 119. We were going through a heat wave through the United States and the central coast of California was not a place that got away with not having hot temperatures. I remember feeling like I was slowing down to the point of being really sluggish. One of the side effects, sluggish. The rest of the account is what I pieced together from other people because then I didn't remember anything. The last thing I remember was sitting under a tree in the shade. But when it's 119, sitting under a tree in the shade isn't really doing it. So my mom said I was moving very slowly and the people from the festival said that we could start packing up and go because frankly, it was too hot for anybody to be comfortable. She said I was sitting in the chair next to where our stuff was and I kind of slid myself to the ground. She said my speech became slurry, my eyes started to roll and then she ran and got some ice from a vendor who was throwing it out and started to pour it on me and realized when she touched me, how hot I was. She called 911, and they were there within like five minutes. At that point, I was unresponsive. My mom was able, wasn't able to go with them, so I could only speculate what happened from that point from the hospital staff that uh, talked to me later. The ED uh, took me right away, of course. They worked extremely hard on me in the ambulance and the ED to get my temperature down. The um, ED, well, the ambulance said my temperature was 108. And remember when I said that the brain starts cooking at 108.1? Yeah, I was right there about to cook. But also had um, they had to intubate me because I wasn't responding anymore, wasn't breathing on my own. The ED must have been successful getting my temperature down. Uh, but I don't know to what degree they got it down to before they sent me to the ICU. I'm assuming a maybe comfortable 104, <laughs> something like that or less. Uh, the next day when my mom could see me, the doctor told her to prepare for the worst, that there was no brain activity and I was pretty much uh, brain dead and I had 1% chance to live. I was kept on sedation and the intubation the ventilator until the day after that on Monday. I think they saw some movement in me. They, my mom said I f had a finger flipping off the world and they thought they would try to reverse the sedation. They did not do that in front of my mom, but I'm not sure why. Maybe they thought I, it would be too emotional. I don't know. Either way it worked and I woke up and I asked what happened. I don't remember that either. Um, but it sounds like a logical thing to ask. Uh, my mom and some family were there by my side for the next couple days, and I went in and out of sleep. And it wasn't until about Wednesday when I felt actually awake that I like the light bulb went on, and I was like, oh, I'm here. Uh, I was confused as to what was going on at the hospital, um, or why I was in the hospital. Um, I was confused as to why I was there. But a doctor had come in, I guess sometime after I had woken up and he said I um, had one kidney 
left and one shut down due to the rhabdo that I experienced during the heat stroke. Now, I do have an autoimmune disorder called rheumatoid arthritis, and I've been going through a hard time with that, so I thought that was why I was in the hospital. So I was a little surprised when the doctor had said I had heat stroke and also aspiration pneumonia, which I guess happened sometime when I had slid off that chair. I don't know, but uh, that was kind of a shock to me. Um, he said that I might have to do dialysis on my kidney, uh, but they would check the labs in the morning because they were worsening. And I remember thinking, nope, I am not losing my kidneys. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it was putting it out in the uh, in the universe, but the next day my lab started to improve. And by Friday, the labs were perfect. All of my labs were perfect, except for the sugar because I was on so much steroids, it was making it go high. So I've had patients that have had rhabdo before, and it really does hurt. I was kind of, not that I was surprised, but it hurt. And I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I knew what it was because it was kind of like this all over pain. And, and luckily they were able to give me something to take that pain away. I was starting to eat pureed foods, I think on Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember which day. And uh, by the end of the week, I was walking with a walker by the, by the weekend. It was such a miracle. People kept coming and saying it was such a miracle. And, and it was crazy that, that hearing from other people saying that I was seeing their brain dead and that I was up and walking within a week is crazy. I don't know how that happened. Just sure willpower. Uh, I don't know. I, I do. I had great nurses and great therapists that really did push me and help. I, I really just did what they asked me to do. And I did have some problems with swallowing and talking for a really long time. I still do, if you can tell by my voice. But I had some ulcers and whatnot going on from the intubation. So I had to be on pureed foods for a while. And I was eating a little bit. They were pushing me to eat more, but I just couldn't. Um, and then, of course, the speech therapist, well, actually everybody, were asking me a million questions. Where are you? Do you remember where you are? And they would ask me over and over again, and now that I realize it's doing the research on heat stroke, that's probably because they were wanting to know if I had brain damage. Well, luckily, I didn't have any brain damage. I had um, a full recovery, except that my muscles are still pretty weak. I came home a week and two days later, and I was working on my legs from that moment because I was so weak and I'm like, I'm still, this still really weak. And I, I've been working on it every day and now it's been like two months now. Um, my labs are all still good. My organs are all functioning properly. Um, and the other thing I get asked a lot is if I saw the light or saw any angels or had any experiences and no, I really didn't. I just woke up from the darkness just woke up. 
I did have some crazy visions, though. After, I think it was probably because of the sedation was wearing off. When I would close my eyes, I would see these weird, trippy visuals, like almost virtual reality. And it seems so vivid, so cool. Like I would see a tapestry with butterflies on it. And then when I got close to the tapestry, the butterflies would fly off or there would be flowers growing. Um, Other times I would see like the beach or I would see colors like copper, like the textured copper off of a pot. Or I would be in the middle of a video game. And I actually played the video game in my head. Um, I had all these weird visions. And every time I would close my eyes, I'd have a new one. The problem was when I closed my eyes, I'd see a vision and I couldn't sleep. So for a whole day, I couldn't even sleep. It was just frustrating. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the brain damage I'm going to have for the rest of my life. What am I going to do? But luckily, by the weekend, it it only lasted a day. And I was able to sleep and um, the visions were gone. So anyway, I'm grateful to be alive. It makes me really cherish even more the people around me and realize I still have lots of living to do and lots of podcasts to make. So thanks for listening. I hope you have a great day and I'll catch you in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's mental vacation from your current life. If you did, and are curious for more, please subscribe. Before you go, if you have anything to add to today's show, or you have a topic that you think is worthy of dissection, please reach out on dissectingmedicalhistory.com or Instagram on dissectingmedicalhistory. Thank you, and stay curious.